before we finish up our series titled Capital Concern, I do want to tell you about what's coming up next week. We're starting a brand new series next week called Blessed, Broken, and Blessing. There, all throughout scripture, um, you'll find that God pours himself, his generous love, his blessings, his favor into broken vessels. How many of you guys feel like a broken vessel these days? Yeah, we, we have to take that stance, right? That's an important part of being the blessing to the community. And so you'll see the little, uh, the little image I put together here, right? We're poured into and then we're broken, but you see the little plant growing up out of the water that's spilled from our brokenness? That is the blessing, right? There is growth to be had. And so for two weeks, in part because we're in a season of Thanksgiving, but also because we're in the season of Be Rich, we're going to talk about what it means to be blessed, broken, and be a blessing to our community. So I'm really excited for that. And then, can you believe it? Christmas is going to start. Advent starts on November 29th. So we're going to decorate this place, make it all festive, and we're going to be celebrating the coming of the Lord Jesus together. So today we are going to finish up Capital Concern, however, and I believe it or not, our Capital Concern is not who is going to occupy the White House. It is not what party has won the election. It is rather that we would be united that we would have love for one another, unconditional love, even amidst very divisive days. I read a thread of comments yesterday that began with this. The very first comment was, I cannot believe how some people who call themselves Christians could have voted for Biden. The very next comment was this, I cannot believe how some people who call themselves Christians could have voted for Trump. And on and on, of course, it went. People started putting their opinions in. Well, all the Republicans are racist. Well, all the Democrats are socialists. We had an immoral fascist as our president, and we're going to have an amoral baby killer as our next president. It was nasty. And this, my friends, was after a Christian article. Assumingly, therefore, that these are Christians who are saying this. It's hard. It's really hard. But all we're doing when we say stuff like that, maybe you've caught yourself saying something like that. Maybe, maybe you've thought yourself thinking something like that. All, all we're doing when we're saying stuff like that is admitting that there is something that we don't know. And so I urge you then, in this situation, to lean in, to listen, to learn, and then to love. Learn where that other person is coming from who you disagree with. Stand where they stand so you can understand where and why they sit where they do. Because when you do this, it humanizes people. And isn't it so hard to look a human in the face and say the kinds of things that we would say so easily over a computer screen? We need to humanize people, my friends, because that will pause us to think about how we're actually going to move forward in treating them. Much of what I just said is covered in the last two weeks of this series. I would encourage you, if you have not been with us, to go and to listen or watch online. You can always do that through our webpage. You can go to our podcasts, um, our YouTube channel, Facebook. Man, it is everywhere. But I would encourage you to go back and listen to the totality of this series. I think it's really important in this day and age and all that we're going through. Now, some of you are with us this morning because you are looking for reassurance and hope. Of everything that transpired over the weekend, you're looking for reassurance and you're looking for hope. You hate the way the election seems to have played out, and you're scared because you think that your rights are going to be taken away. But if you're a Democrat, you're thinking, what is there to be scared of? We won! Now, if the Republicans had won, that would be something to be afraid of. 
And here's what I want you to know. That your friend, your brother, your coworker, your niece, your nephew, your aunt, your uncle, your neighbor, they are experiencing this differently than you are. They are. They're experiencing differently than you are. And so when you speak to someone or about someone, you must remember that you are speaking to someone made in the image of God. You must see their humanity. You must see their humanity. They're made in the image of God. And above all else, this provides them their dignity and their worth, not who they voted for, not what side of a partisan line they stand on. They are made in the image of God. And so you better be careful for how you open your mouth when you speak to people. Or type. You see, we have the complete political spectrum at our church. And my friends, I love this about us. I love this. The people who are just sitting three rows, their chairs down from you, who worship the same Lord and glorify the same God and have committed their life to the same Jesus Christ that you have, may have voted differently than you. And they may think differently than you politically. And they may be on the different end of a political spectrum. My friends, if you're looking for a church where everyone is the same, you guys are in the wrong church. And I love that, right? I I love that we think differently and we have different opinions about things. I love diversity, and I hope that you never attend a church that demands or instructs that you all think the same about everything. Because those churches are going to become bunkers, and those churches are going to become fortresses, and they are going to be abandoning the Great Commission for fear of new ideas. And the world would be lost in a world for churches like that. And right now, in this time in history, we have an unprecedented opportunity to model for our community what it looks like to disagree politically, to love unconditionally, and yet to work towards unity. So here's the question, my friends. Do you want this? Right, we want this, right? We talk about this all the time. Of course, we want this. Restoration Church is going to be about this. Do you think that you can do this? And I don't mean just tolerate people who think differently than you. I don't mean just tolerate people and maybe just roll your eyes at those people who voted differently than you. Are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of our historical collective Christian faith? Are you willing to evaluate your politics through your faith filter rather than your political filter? A, a, A filter that would undoubtedly create a version of faith that supports your politics. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians do this. And so the real issue is, are you willing to put your political filter behind, not in front of, your political filter? Your faith filter behind, your, your political filter behind, I'm sorry, not in front of your faith filter. Are we willing to be Jesus people first and political people second? To evaluate and then reevaluate our politics in light of what Jesus taught? To follow Jesus when, creating G- uh, when following Jesus puts space between us and our political party, our political platform, our political candidate. Most Christians are not able to do this, especially now. And it makes me sad. We knew that it was bad before the election, and it may only get worse. It's sad, right? It's so easy to be divided and to assume that God and, and Jesus are in step with us and on our side. And that he is on our team. Jesus apparently saw this coming. He didn't maybe see the election coming, though maybe he did. He saw the division coming. 
He saw the division coming. After Jesus had his final Passover meal with his disciples, he prays a prayer that is recorded in John. And I want to take some time to, to walk through this prayer because this is such an important prayer. It's such a powerful prayer because in this prayer, he has a prayer request for us. Looking through the lens of history, 2,000 years down the road, he saw Restoration Church and all the other churches gathering that would be in such a divisive time. And he says, I have a prayer request for them. And so did you know that Jesus prays for us, specifically for us? We're going to look at that in just a minute. See, anytime you come across a prayer in Scripture, you need to pay attention to it because, we, you know, we did a whole series back on this in February of 2018 called First Things First, if you're interested in going back and listening to that. Prayers and scriptures give us a window into the deepest desire of the author writing those prayers. This is what I want for this community. Above all else, Lord, this is what I desire. This is what I want to be evident in their lives. That is what prayers and scripture do. And in this prayer, Jesus' greatest desire comes spilling out as he makes his request of the Father. And here is what he says in John chapter 17. He says, Father, the hour has come, right? I've been with these 12 men for the last three and a half years. We've lived life. They've seen miracles. They've changed. They have grown. I've taught them what the kingdom of God is like. The hour has come, right? It's all leading up to this. This is the culmination moment. This is the climax of it all. Glorify your son. That's a big word, glory, right? Glorify. It's very churchy. Uh, it, it literally means weightiness. It means importance. Jesus is like, okay, I'm about to be arrested. I'm about to be crucified and lifted up. And so, God, I want you to light me up. I want you to, to put a spotlight upon me so that all of the attention of all of the world is driven towards me. Directed towards me so that people will recognize who I am. Glorify your son, he asks. That your son may glorify you. That your son may light you up that I might shine a spotlight upon you, that all of the attention of the world might be drawn up to you so that people will recognize that we are connected. Glorify me so that I may glorify you. He's speaking about his crucifixion in this context. Right, the hour that God was most glorified, we would have been so horrified from that moment. We would have looked away, but God never looked better because in this very moment, this was the moment that God was redeeming the world. This was the moment that God's pure love was so de deliberately and beautifully manifested. And Jesus is like, okay, we're at this hour. I'm about to be glorified. I'm about to be crucified. I'm about to be lifted up. All the attention of all the world is about to be drawn towards me. And before that happens, Father, there's something that I ask of you. There's something that I hope that you will do. There's something that I need from you. Heavenly Father, I recognize that I will remain in the world no longer, right? I'm about to die, but they, the disciples, they're still in the world. See, I, I function like a shield for them, and there's a ton of hostility swirling about me because I'm the Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah that the religious folk were expecting. And so once I die, all of the, the, the angst and the tension and the hatred that was driven towards me from all those religious folks, it's all going to be put on these disciples. They are going to be chased after. They are going to be tracked down. They are going to be killed in the streets. And I've been a protection for them. But when I'm crucified, that protection is going to stop. And so, Holy Father, protect them, these 12 guys and my disciples, by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that, whenever you see so that, right, that's a purpose of clause. That's a, that's a really important, important part of what he is saying here. Protect them. And, and specifically, here's how I want you then to protect them. 
the interesting thing is that we've already talked about this just, just um, for a minute here, right? There, there's some really bad news coming for the disciples. Jesus functioned as a shield for them, but when he's gone, then the physical protection is going to be gone. So Jesus is saying, guys, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be flogged. You're going to be beaten. Some of you are going to be killed. That is your future. That is what you look forward to in following me in the first century Roman world. It's not going to be pretty. But here he's praying that God would protect them, but he's not praying for their physical protection. Jesus knows exactly what the disciples are about to be going through, but Jesus does not pray for their physical protection. No, he he prays for something he thinks is infinitely more important than their physical protection. Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one. Hmm. This is his one prayer request. Out of all of the things that he could have prayed in his last day, in his dying moments, this is what he prayed for his followers. This is his greatest desire. He wanted this unity protected more than anything else. And he continues, as we are one, as he and the Father are one. See, at the very end, the thing Jesus was most concerned about was their unity and it was their oneness because here's what he knew. As long as we were in lockstep together with the Heavenly Father, that his disciples would change the world. If they were in lockstep together with his Heavenly Father and lockstep together as a body, a unified body working towards a purpose, they would change the world. But if they ever got divided and if they ever got splintered, things would just stall out. And then in verse 20, he prays for you. And he prays for me and he prays for us. See, my my prayer is not for them alone, he says. My prayer is also for those who believe in me through their message. And so the next generation of followers, and the generation after that, and the generation after that, and the generation after that, all the way up to you and me sitting in this room, we are the generation that Jesus prayed for. And what do you think that he prayed for us? The answer is not what we typically pray for us. Right, this, is, this is sad. My, my, my hunch is that virtually none of us have ever asked for God what Jesus asked for God on our behalf. Virtually none of us have ever prayed the prayer that Jesus prays, even though he models it, and it is so close to his heart, and he thinks this is the most important thing for us, and none of us ever pray this prayer. Very few of us ever pray this prayer, and maybe this is the problem. Maybe if the church, maybe if people like me had been begging God for this from day one, maybe if the people like us had been on our knees crying out to God, begging God for this, because this was so close to the heart of Jesus, and this is so close to the purpose of Jesus for us, maybe the world would be in a different place. Maybe the church would be in a different place. Maybe we'd have greater influence on a very dead society in which we live. See, his pr- my, my, my prayer is not for them alone, he says. That all of them, in the first century, that meant Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and freedmen, men and women, tax gatherers, those whom tax were gathered, military, citizens, educated, uneducated, everybody. And in our day and age, in the 21st century, it means what? Republicans and Democrats, the privileged, the not-so-privileged, the indes- independents, the indecisive, the libertarians, Black and brown, white and beige, married, single, everybody, all of them, he says. 
All of the people who call me Lord, no matter where they're from or what they've experienced or how good life has been or how good life has treated them or how poorly life has treated them, whether they're connected, whether they're disconnected, I pray that all of them in this vast array, this extraordinary sea of diversity, with all of these different experiences, I pray somehow that they may be at the heart of what Jesus wanted for his people throughout the generations. He had one prayer to pray, and this is what he prayed, that we would be one, that we would be unified. It sounds impossible in a day like today, but Jesus was convinced, as possible as it may sound, that this was mission critical, which meant that even though it seemed impossible, it was absolutely imperative that we get this right. This wasn't just an add-on. This wasn't like, yeah, you know, if they can get it right, wouldn't it be nice? Yeah, it would be a great little benefit. But no, Jesus is like, this is mission critical, which means that we should be intentional about assuring unity within our church because this is what Jesus prayed for in his last hour. But it doesn't come, nece- it doesn't come naturally, does it? In such a divisive world, in such a polarized world, it just doesn't come naturally. And the reason it doesn't come naturally is because we only know what we know. And the reason it doesn't come naturally is because we're raised who we're raised by, and we lived where we lived, and we experienced what we experienced. And we sit then with our opinions and our ideas because of where we stand. And we tend to run towards our coroners politically and relationally and in every kind of way. And Jesus is like, man, he had this vision of his church, and he was like, it's going to be so diverse. It's going to be so diverse and, and so international and so many different languages and so many different colors and so many different cultures and so many different upbringings and political standings. And if there's any way, if there's any way that they could remain one and united, And together. And then he continues, Father, just as you were in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that, right? It's another purpose clause. This is a purpose to it. And do you know why he is praying for oneness? It it actually has nothing to do with us. He prayed for oneness because of what he wanted to do through us. And there may be a lack of unity and the church will survive. But if there is a lack of unity within the local church, the will of God will not be accomplished through the local church. See, the reason I want them to be one is that the world, not the people who already know Jesus, not the people already inside the church, not the people sitting in the pews and in the chairs, not the people who already profess Jesus as Lord. No, so that the church... The people on the outside, the people outside the faith, the people who roll their eyes and they just keep driving on by, the people who mock us and rebuke us so that the church, I'm sorry, so that the world, so that when they see the unity of the church, in spite of diversity within the church, they may actually come to the conclusion, they may believe, he says, that they may be convinced that you have sent me. This isn't an add-on, right? This isn't, a, this isn't a wouldn't it be nice. No, this is mission critical. See, the way the world is going to sit up and take notice of this beautifully diverse thing called the church is when the church is unified and works together even when we disagree. 
And even though we've been raised in different ways and have different experiences and we stand in different places and sit in different places and have different perspectives and different opinions, politically and theologically perhaps even, even when there is unity, the world is going to stand up and it's going to take notice of what we're about. This is the way forward. This is what will eventually get the attention of the empire, Jesus is saying. And this is what eventually is going to get the attention of the pagan world, he is saying. And there's never been anything like it in Jesus' day and age, and you cannot sacrifice your unity for anything, right? Because through the unity Jesus is praying, I recognize through the unity that they have, the world is going to take notice. And so they better get this right. But what does it really mean to be united? You know, what does it actually look like? Well, it's interesting that Jesus actually was asking the heaven, his heavenly Father, he was asking the Father for something that he had already talked to his disciples about previously. He was asking the Heavenly Father to come along later and, and nudge future generations of Christians what he had just commanded us to do and his disciples to do a few pages earlier as he met with them around the Passover festival. He said, look, you know, guys, I, I'm about to leave, and so here is the one thing that I do not want you to forget. His very last instructions to his disciples. Here's the one thing I don't want you to forget. If, if, you, if you forget everything else that you've learned and saw, do not forget this. This is imperative. I'm going to give you a new command. I'm going to establish a new covenant. I'm going to take those 613 Old Testament laws that you had, that law of Moses, I'm going to boil them down to one single idea. And it's so simple. You don't even need to write it down. It's so simple. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to love one another. As I have loved you, this isn't any kind of love. You don't get to make it up. No, I've already modeled it for you. As I have loved you, you are to love one another. This is a new command, not a new suggestion. This is our marching orders. It's not even about us also. The reason I want you to love each other is not just so that you'll get along. It's not so just that you'll be happy together and be at peace with each other. No, there, there is implications here as well. This is mission critical because when you choose to love each other, then the world will know who my disciples are. If you do, in fact, love one another the same way that I have loved you. Jesus says, my friends, look at what I've done. I've modeled it for you. I've given you an example. This is exactly what it means to be a follower of me. Now go and live like I have lived for you. Lean towards those who aren't like you. Lean towards those who may consider you an enemy. Lean towards those who think differently than you and vote differently than you. Lean towards them and carry them when they're wounded and help them carry their burdens when it is heavy. Share their load and share what you claim is yours with them. And when they, even though they are not like you, even though they may disagree with you, when they do the same for you, when you lean towards each other, my friends, you are unified. So Jesus, after he's given them this command, he's, he's asking the Father, oh man, just God, please help them to get this right. As you look through the lens of history down all the way to us, help them to get this right. As this thing expands and grows and goes out from Judea to Samaria to the very ends of the earth, help them to love each other as different as they are. Help them to love each other. See, I've given them the glory, he continues in his prayer in John 17. I've given them the glory that you've given me. And so, Father, I want you to light them up 
put all the attention of the world upon them, draw that spotlight, direct that spotlight onto them, onto the focus of the church. And we're like, Jesus, no, that has been the problem this whole time. That the world is looking at the church and we see that we are horrible at being unified. Jesus asked that all of the attention of the world would be drawn to the church because he knew that when the world looked at what the church was doing, that the world would want to become like the church, but our church, and I mean the capital C church, I mean the church in recent years, in the last hundred years, as the world has looked at the church, they said, I want absolutely nothing to do with those people. They're the most divisive, the most polarizing, the most judging, the most hypocritical the most angry and impatient people that we know. Why would we want to be like them? The world is better than the church. And we're like, Jesus, no, that was the problem. We, he wanted the, the, the world to look at the church and to pay attention to what the church was doing. And in the first century, they got it right, and it changed the world. And friends, we need to do better. The church needs to do better. But, Jesus says, if they could get it right. And I believe that Restoration Church, we're, we're doing our darndest to get it right, are we not? I mean, come on, we are, we're, we're, we're I, I call you towards humility. I, I call you to owning your faults and owning the ways that you have been wrong, to coming up underneath people, to be servants, to be generous. I hope that we are getting it right. And I hope that our world will take notice at least of what we are accomplishing here, what God is accomplishing through us here. Because Jesus knew that if they could be unified, that they may be one as we are one, right? If we were one together, like the Father is one, that we would be brought to complete unity. And when we are brought to complete unity, Jesus knew that the world would take notice and that the world would believe that God had sent him. That the world would change. And he's not saying that we need to be united politically. He says that we need to be united around our purpose. It's unity of worldview, that the world would see each other in the, the way that I see them, how the Heavenly Father sees them. That they would see me, God says, the way that I am to be seen. That this worldview of a God who loves them and a Savior who dies for them would be so encapsulating that it would define everything about them, the local church. It would define everything about us. And that we would place the gospel out front and we would run our lives through its filter. Every component of our life through our lives through its filter. And we then would let it impact and define our actions and our words and our thoughts towards one another. That, Father, Jesus says, would change the world. And that's my hope for us as well. That we might be a people so committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ that that would be the filter by which we run all of our words and our things we choose to view and the things we choose to type, and the actions that we commit, even our hearts, our prayers, everything that we do would be run through the filter of Jesus Christ. And in this way, may the world begin to take notice. The world will then know for certainty that God sent Jesus, and that he loves the world, even as he loves us. And so Jesus would say, you know, Heavenly Father, you know, and I know that everything rides on their unity. Not around their politics, not around their culture, not around their language, not around the bits and pieces of their worldview, not around how they do baptism or communion or, or our views on Genesis 1 or, or, or women leadership, spiritual gifts. 
Now, we know there is a core that they must be united around, and if they are, the world is going to change. And my friends, after the resurrection, it happened, right? The disciples took this message of Jesus to love one another, and they, they took this prayer of unity, and they rallied together, and they went out into their city streets, and they proclaimed this very simple but compelling gospel, and it changed the world, and it created an on-ramp to the Father. And so here, here's the thing, and we're all smart, and so we all know this already, and, and I'm not the first to say this. You've probably seen this on a meme somewhere. Your political candidate won or lost. Your political candidate won or lost based on how America voted, but the church is going to win or lose based on how we treat each other every single freaking day. That's why we must not, and this is not an add-on, this is not a, it would be nice to have, right? This is why we must not allow anything to divide us, and we must not allow anyone to then divide us. Because Christianity shaped Western culture. We were the origins, Christianity was the origins of dignity, of justice. Western Christianity was forever changed when Jesus Christ entered the world. And so as we see a world that is crumbling and becoming more polarized and divisive all around us, we also have the tools that it takes to change the world. I have to believe that. It was Jesus' prayer for us. So why in the world, then, would we opt for anything less than that, than Jesus' ultimate prayer for us? Why in the world would we allow ourselves to be divided over that through our very short history as a nation? Do you know that both political parties have gotten it wrong? Nobody was absolutely right, 100% right all of the time. During our so short history as a nation, several parties even turned out the lights because their party was over, right? The Whigs, the Federalists. You don't have many of them running around the streets anymore, do we? There were entire political parties that were so adamant and so passionate about certain things that do not even exist anymore. And so why would we, as followers of an eternal king, allow ourselves to be divided by temporary political systems? Temporary political leaders, temporary political platforms, why would we allow ourselves to be divided over lesser kings? And it's embarrassing for the local church and the church as a whole. But why would we allow ourselves to be divided by fear? I mean, Jesus' most off-quoting command was fear not, fear not, fear not, so many times, fear not. And so many of us are so afraid of a potential future. And so let's just pause and think about the context that Jesus said, fear not. Right, right, you have the temple on the one side that is doing all they can to drag Jesus before a political leader who could eventually crucify him. They can't wait to have Jesus arrested. And you have the empire on the other side that's going to perform the execution. And in the middle of those colossal forces, Jesus says, hey, guys, man, just ignore them. Just ignore them. Fear not. Because a king, who is, a king has come, and when the king rallies his people around the message of the king, we know that extraordinary things can happen. And I believe that when we are rallied around the message of our king, that extraordinary things can happen again. It happened once, it can certainly happen again. And so why would we allow any political view a view that you're probably going to outgrow in 10 years. I mean, I look back in 10 years, and I don't think the same way politically as I did then. So why would we allow anything that is not going to last through time to divide us? Why would we rest our foundation upon that? 
Why would we do that when Jesus' single command is believe what you want to believe, vote for who you want to vote for, but do not dare treat somebody made in the image of God poorly? Why would we not fight for and struggle for and sacrifice for the unity that our king prayed for? See, it was the unity of the church that got the attention of a pagan world and eventually the empire. Responsible for crucifying Jesus also embraced him. It can happen again, friends. We just need to begin modeling it. So do you want to do it? Do we, as Restoration Church, will we be committed to it? And I don't say this much about anything, but I can say this with confidence, my friends. Unity is God's will for us. Unity is God's will for us. This is God's will for every single church because, my friends, this is exactly what Jesus prayed for. I'm going to invite Emily forward. We're going to do a refrain of that second song that we sang, calling us to unity. But before we do that, I'm going to make two suggestions about how we move forward. Two things. I want you to start praying like Jesus prayed. You know, I, I admitted that not many Christians probably ever pray for unity, but we need to start praying for unity as a church. Most of us have never prayed this, but pray for oneness and pray for out loud. And it's so simple. Maybe we just say something like this. Heavenly Father, Make us one so that we can influence many. Now, this isn't about church growth or getting people into a building. This is about the universal church, right? God said, if they can stay one, looking at the church through the future, if they can stay one, the world is going to pay attention and the world is going to look up. And so we should pray. Make us one so that we can influence many. This is the prayer of our Savior just hours before he was crucified. This is what he wanted protected above all else, even more than the lives of his closest first century followers. And so can we just take a minute, whether you're in person, downstairs in the family room, or online, can we just say this out loud? Can we just pray this together? Heavenly Father, make us one so that we can influence many. Let's do that again. Heavenly Father, make us one so that we can influence many. It's so simple, but let that be your prayer. Write it on a card if you need a reminder. Keep it on your dashboard. Keep it on your fridge. Keep it in front of you. Let this be our prayer. Second, I want you to look for an opportunity to love unconditionally someone whom you disagree with politically. You may think, I don't know anybody who disagrees with me politically. That's a problem, first of all, okay? I want you to look for somebody whom you disagree with politically, and I want you to go out of your way, maybe this week, to love them unconditionally, to lift them up, to carry a burden that you see that they have. We need to cross over those dividing lines. Now, you may be thinking, Ross, um, this is your job, right? You're a pastor. You're supposed to look at the words of Jesus, and okay, you kind of wrapped it in a political context. And that's, that's kind of cute and all, and I kind of I get it. You're just doing your job, though. Isn't this all just so naive? Can we actually come together? And I want to tell you something that may have been naive to the first century audience listening in. Let me give you an example of something naive. There was a first century rabbi from nowhere, from Podunk, Syria, Surrounded by 12 boys with no political clout. And he says, guys, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build a movement. I'm going to gather my people. 
and the gates of Hades itself will not overcome it. That's naive. I mean, they looked around, they're like, what, are you you talking about us? We're We're a bunch of hillbillies. We don't know anything. We're uneducated. We're a bunch of fishermen. We can't change the world. You're going to do what? Now, I'm going to start a movement, and guys, you are going to be a part of it. And neither Rome, nor the temple, nor any culture, nor any nation, or any political movement will ever stop it. My friends, that is naive. But it started. And the world has not stopped it. My friends, we have the privilege of being a part of it. So come on, Jesus is our king. So let's love one another. Even if we disagree, let's love one another. Let's treat each other with dignity and let's anchor our hope in Christ, his word, and his promises.